this morning, I want you to travel with me, as I like to say oftentimes, by an eye of faith. I want you to go with me to the shores of the Sea of Galilee. It's sometime around the year 30. And I want you to see a young man there on the shores of Galilee. He's young and he's physically and mentally and spiritually fit. And he's standing there on the shore as the sun illuminates his face. And as he talks about God, his eyes show a light that comes from within. Around him that day, there is gathered a strange assortment of folks listening to him. They're hanging on to his every word. There are fishermen there. Imagine that on the shores of the Sea of Galilee. But there are also tax collectors and there are peasants and there are villagers all gathered around listening to what this young man has to say. Not long after this, he calls some of them to come and to follow him. To some of those fishermen, he told them, he said, I'll make you fishers of men. For the most part, they were uneducated people. People of no social or political influence. Their only qualification was the fact that their hearts were open to a new truth. And when this charming and gifted young man called, they did not hesitate. Because the life that he was living, the life he was calling them to, was one that was appealing to them. His words opened up new horizons for them. Can you imagine just how utterly intoxicating those early days with Jesus Christ must have been? Everywhere he went, crowds gathered around him. Sick folks were be made well. Darkened hearts saw the light. Sin-bound slaves found freedom. Jesus was even able to raise the dead. Tragically, shadows just slowly begin to fall across this bright scene. The darkness gradually deepened. His enemies gathered, and His enemies as they gathered plotted His death. And no doubt for a time His followers must have felt that someone with this kind of power could never be taken. He had the power to heal the sick. He had the power to raise the dead. He had the power to make the lame to walk. Surely He would not allow Himself to be put to death. They had no fears for His safety. After all, what enemy could possibly overcome this kind of power? But after a time, they came to realize something. They realized He would allow Himself to be taken. They realized the darkest hour of history would soon come to pass. Because Jesus, the Son of God, was put to death. But even Jesus was defeated by death. But death could not hold Jesus Christ. 
And the grave could not conquer him. And he came forth victorious over death and the grave. When he did, his followers all came out of their hiding places. And suddenly they felt that old glow of heart and that old kindling of the mind. And they went out to tell a skeptical world news that it could not refute at that point now. News that cannot be refuted even to this very day, 2,000 years later. So Paul wrote this in 1 Corinthians 1, 23 and 24. We preach Christ crucified, the power of God. Sadly, familiarity has dulled our minds to the concept of a crucified Christ being the power of God. When you and I think of power, what comes to our mind? Is it the power of a great ocean liner or a great battleship plowing through the lanes of the sea? Is it a jet streaking across the sky faster than the speed of sound? It is a rocket being launched, taking men and women into outer space. Is it the authority of kings and presidents and the reign of law? What is power? Who in their right mind would look at the body of a defeated and dying man as power? But that so-called defeated man dying on that cross was God. And death had no dominion over Him. And the defeated Jesus became the risen Christ. Worshipped and adored throughout the whole world. What we need to do, we need to recover the important truth of the power of Jesus Christ. All too often, artists, as they've attempted to paint the likeness of Jesus, have painted Christ as anything but a powerful man while he was on earth. He's been pictured as practically anemic and effeminate even in a weak and unworthy sense of the word. Much has been made over the years and much has been emphasized about the gentleness of Jesus and we've heard so much over the years about the Gentle Jesus, meek and mild. I've said this before, and I'm going to say it again, and I'll continue to say it as long as there's breath in my body. We have been overdosed on this gentle Jesus, meek and mild. It is time for us to take Jesus Christ out of the perfumed cloisters of pious sentiment and let Jesus Christ walk the streets of the city. It's time for us to see the Christ of the Gospels, suntanned, bronzed, fearless. It's time for us to see the man that grew up in the carpenter shop 
It's time to see the rippling muscles, the man that walked into the temple and overturned the tables of the money changers, the man who fashioned a whip of the cords and drove out the frightened cattle, and no one dared to lift a finger to try to stop him. Let's see the Jesus Christ of power, the Son of God, the one who was with God in the very beginning, the one John wrote about when John said, the same was in the beginning with God, all things were made by Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. That's in John chapter 1, verses 2 and 3. Picture Paul. Paul was writing to an obscure little community in the Lycus Valley in ancient Phrygia. It'd be a part of what is now modern-day Turkey. And to that little community, Paul would say that by Jesus, all things consist. Here's what it actually says in Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 through 17. Who is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of every creature, For by Him were all things created that are in heaven and are in the earth, visible and invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created by Him and for Him, and He is before all, and by Him all things consist. When Paul said, by Him all things consist, in the original that word consist means in Him. In who? In Jesus. All things hold together. Now I want you to pause a moment. And I want you to think. Of what a preposterous idea this is. Was this man not a carpenter of Nazareth? Doesn't he fit into a purely human picture? Didn't he have brothers and sisters? Wasn't he put to death by Roman authority like a common criminal? Can you imagine them asking Paul, Paul, what on earth are you talking about? And can you hear Paul look at him and say, Hey, that's only the human side of Jesus. Jesus was the Son of God. And the death of Jesus on that rough-hewn wooden cross on Calvary's hill displays His power. It displays the power of suffering love. And we might wonder about Jesus. Jesus with His power. Why would Jesus with all of His power allow Himself to be put to death? Why would he allow a handful of Jews to take his life? Couldn't Jesus assert his power? Couldn't he overthrow his enemies? Of course he could have. One word from Jesus. And Pilate would have been like a lot of our elected officials today. He'd have been totally insane. One gesture from the mighty hand of Jesus... And the rule of the proud Herod would have come to an end. Jesus said, I can pray to my Father and more than 12 legions of angels are going to be at my disposal. 
when we allow our minds to think that way, we're forgetting the true function of power. Power is the ability to accomplish a purpose. Power is the ability to accomplish a desired goal. What was the goal of God? The goal of God, the purpose of God, was the redemption of the world. The salvation of my soul and yours. The purpose of God was to buy back, to redeem human lives from the grip and the bondage of sin. God wanted lost men and women to willingly, willingly accept the bondage of love. What good would it have been to drive Pilate mad? What would it have accomplished to end the reign of the wicked Herod? What would have been the purpose of putting the Roman armies to flight with legions of angels? That might have been called power. But it wouldn't have redeemed anyone. It wouldn't have saved anyone's soul. Write this down, it's on the final exam. The relevant power in the scheme of redemption is the suffering love of Jesus Christ. It's the power of a love that goes on loving and loving and loving. It's the power of a love that suffers and never seeks vengeance and never seeks reprisal. That's the love that wins the allegiance of men and women. And that's the love that cannot, cannot fail to win in the end. I'm reminded of a story I read, a true story, of a problem child, a young boy. When our boys were growing up, we wanted them to be good boys. We want our grandsons to be good boys. Like all parents and grandparents, this boy's parents wanted him to be a good boy. But nothing they could think of doing prevented him from being bad. I mean, just really bad. He was kept in at school. Didn't do anything. They withheld his allowance. He was banished to his bedroom for time out. His favorite foods and desserts were taken away from him. He was given whipping after whipping after whipping. And this boy still remained a problem child. He actually seemed to be hardened by the things that were meant to soften him. But it happened one summer afternoon. Something very interesting occurred. This little boy had one beloved pet. A little rough-haired dog. On this hot summer day, the little boy was trying to teach this little dog a trick. The little dog seemed very tired. And the boy was very impatient. The little dog failed to understand what his master was wanting him to do. The little boy kicked his little dog in the mouth. 
and made his mouth bleed. With big brown eyes, that little rough-haired dog looked at the boy puzzled and bewildered. And then painfully, very painfully, because the boy had hurt the little dog's shoulder. The dog struggled onto its hind legs, put up its little paws trying so hard to learn the trick that his young master was trying to teach him and wanted him to do. As the boy came closer to the dog, that little rough-haired dog put out its blood-stained tongue and tried to lick his master's hand. That was when the boy broke down. That's when blinded by tears, he ran running to his mother and he told his mother sobbing, Mom, I've done an awful thing. Restrictions never made him cry. Confinement to his room never made him cry. Whippings never broke him. But the suffering love of a little rough-haired dog broke his heart. Suffering love broke his heart. And that's only the story of the suffering love of a little rough-haired dog. The news that we proclaim is the suffering love of God. That's why I want to be able with Paul to preach Jesus Christ and Him crucified. That's why I want to be able to stand behind the cross and proclaim a suffering Savior. I don't want to be like those guys that, that stand in front of the cross and talk about a feel-good religion. I want to stand behind the cross of Christ because it's about Jesus Christ and His suffering love. The cross of Christ is the symbol of the greatest energy the universe has ever known. It's the symbol of divine love that suffers and never bullies. The love of Jesus that knocks but never kicks the door down. The love that goes on loving until we can do nothing but surrender to that love. A love that's overwhelming, never tiring, and utterly convincing. Sometimes, sometimes folks make this concept of serving Jesus way too complicated. Have you ever heard over the years me stand here and say I'm just a simple country preacher? It's what I am. I'll go on and tell you don't confuse simple with simple minded. That's two different things. But sometimes folks just take something simple and make it complicated. And they make serving the Lord way too complicated. They make Christianity a complicated thing. So many different groups. So many different creeds. So many theologies. Men have taken something simple. Something pure. Corrupted it. And made it complicated. I'm very sincere when I say this.
I can put the gospel into six words. Just six words. And here they are. Jesus offers His friendship to you. It is that friendship that changed the lives of men who followed Him when He called. Today, He's essentially the same. And He still calls us to follow Him. He calls us to surrender our pride and our selfishness to His way of life. You remember the night that Jesus ate the last Passover with the apostles? They were in an upper room in the city of Jerusalem. He had taught them a lesson in humility and had washed their feet. He had told them to not let their hearts be troubled to believe in Him. And He began then to teach them further. 